welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. It's been over eight years since the start of the Arab Spring. And while attention in Washington has in many ways shifted away from the post-Arab Spring conflicts towards the Trump administration's focus on Iran and broader regional conflicts, the legacies of the Arab Spring, of the region's failed pro-democracy uprisings, are still very relevant today. And so whether it's ongoing conflicts in places like Syria or Libya, tensions between political Islam and the region's authoritarian governments, or just the role of sectarianism as a tool of foreign policy, a lot of what we're seeing in the Middle East today is the result of the Arab Spring, or sometimes the factors that produced it. Um, New uprisings in Sudan in just the last few months also suggest that maybe this period of Middle Eastern history isn't over. So joining us today to discuss all of this is Peter Mandeville. Peter is currently a professor at George Mason University and has written widely on Islam and politics. Um, Perhaps more importantly for this conversation, he was a member of Secretary Clinton's policy planning staff at the State Department during the Arab Spring. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Emma. Glad to be with you and Trevor. As always, we're going to start with a little discussion of the news. And I was as surprised as anybody to see that Donald Trump's state visit to the United Kingdom actually went off pretty well. There weren't any major gaffes. Um, But his visit to Ireland on the back end of that trip caused a little more controversy as he refused to leave his own golf course that he owns. And the Irish government, um, good for them, actually refused to meet him at the golf course because it was a private enterprise. So I thought we could talk a little more broadly about the Trump presidency and his business foreign policy conflicts of interest. Because now we're a couple of years into the presidency, we've seen this kind of thing happen repeatedly. What do we think? I I think of Trump as this guy who, when you were a kid, you had this friend, a friend who would never do a sleepover at anyone else's house. It always had to be at their house. And I feel like Trump is just like the president version of this. Like, I don't know that's because he wants to advertise his businesses, which I, I guess he probably does, but I just feel like he's not comfortable anywhere else. Anyway, no, and I think when a, a close partner like the UK has to host them, you just feel like this thing is this tightly choreographed thing that they're just trying to get through so they can say they did it and we can kind of get back to. Yeah, I was surprised there were no gaffes. I mean, it looked like it was, you know, just a complete dumpster fire waiting to happen, but then just sort of nothing happened. But I think the broader question, Emma, that you know you raised about the business conflicts, I, you know. Well, someone's going to do this accounting at some point and and figure out how much he made off the presidency. And I think that's going to be a non-trivial number. Um, you know, there was just a report in the Post a few days ago about the Trump Hotel here in, in town. It's just, I mean, you have Middle Eastern magnates staying, you know, racking up tens of thousands of dollars in hotel, you know, lodging, you know, whatever. I just, it's nuts. Now, you get the sense that, you know, as he deals with countries like North Korea and the sort of constant refrain of, wow, you could build an awesome golf course here. Or, oh, you, you, there's this vision of the next tower constantly in his mind. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, actually, um, as, as someone who's from Scotland originally, I was kind of surprised that he opted to go to his Irish golf course rather than just go inside the UK to his Scottish golf course, which probably would have been a little less controversial. Um, the real cynical answer there, maybe the Irish one has been losing a lot of money and the Scottish one has been doing a little better. Um, but it, it is kind of interesting that every time he goes on one of these foreign trips, he does always find this opportunity to try and patronize his own businesses. And for all that he says, he's he's not involved in them and he's not promoting them. He absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, it makes you, I mean, I, I 
think we have a law about these things, but I guess we just don't enforce it. So that's how that goes. We have laws about all kinds of things. These, you know, boundaries are maybe being... It's another pushed. pentimento of the Trump administration is we have laws, we just don't enforce them when Trump breaks them. This is something maybe we should get a lawyer on the podcast to discuss because I, I don't really understand myself why some of this doesn't work. But Do, uh, do they have any of those in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's move on to something a little less trivial uh, in the news, which is um, as many of the million people actually protested in Hong Kong over the last weekend, um, they were protesting a bill that would allow for extradition to mainland China. But a lot of observers are interpreting this as um, people in Hong Kong pushing back at the consistent overstretch and attempts by the Chinese central government to actually impose Chinese rules inside Hong Kong. And I think those rules are not meant to be imposed until the 2040s. So um, this is kind of a really interesting tension that's going on here. Yeah, and I think, you know, with Hong Kong, there was always going to be the date on paper and there was going to be the reality of Beijing constantly pushing and reaching in and finding ways to kind of alter aspects of that arrangement to its advantage. Yeah, I just, I mean, as soon as the handover happened, what was it, 99? 97. 97? Yeah. I, you know, you just sort of felt bad for Hong Kong. Like, sorry, that period's over. And you can flee now or you can decide that you whatever you're doing, it's making money. You think you can do that for another, I don't know, what's the number, 10? I guess it's 20 years. And then you're going to have to get the heck out of Dodge because there's only one end to this story, and that is the complete, you know, uh, absorption of Hong Kong into China's political system. And and this is just, you know, still the foothills, but come on, you know where this is ending. I do have to wonder if there was a viewpoint, you know, from, from people in Hong Kong that was, well, 20, I think it's 2047, but that period that that's far enough out that maybe then the Chinese government itself would have liberalized by that time. And so the threat is less real. But it's it's just so interesting that the, that the government in Beijing keeps trying to interfere, even though they promised not to. Um, and, and there's been very, little pushback from Britain or from any of the other Western powers on this. I think the Chinese have their own version of power problems, um, <clears throat> to coin a phrase. Um, when you're that powerful, it's really hard not to meddle, right? Yeah. I mean, you have the power, you think you can do stuff, you want to do stuff, no one can stop you. So you do yes. stuff, even if it's yes. heavy-handed, ham-fisted and, you know, whatever. No, I mean, I, I, it's not that I doubt the commitment that they made to keep that distance. But like you said, there once you have achieved and are operating at that scale, there's just structural pressures that push you in that direction. Okay, well, um, our third topic of the day, returning home again, kind of. Uh, the president has engaged in a prolonged Twitter fight with Mexico about trade issues, or maybe it's about immigration issues. Um, one way or the other, he suggested we'd be raising tariffs on Mexican goods if they don't fix the immigration problem. Then he seemed to back away from that. Then he announced a deal that might have been agreed beforehand. This is all extremely confusing. Do you guys know what's going on? I, I don't know if anyone really knows what's going on. Everyone seems to have a slightly different account of all of this. But I mean, it, it does look like the, you know, the actual core elements of the deal related to things that were agreed with the Mexicans some weeks or months ago and have now been kind of repackaged and maybe the timeline accelerated somewhat that, you know, allows the president to say he's a, achieved something. Um, but there seem to be many Mexicans and frankly, some American officials that, that don't seem to be singing from the same choir sheet as our president. Yeah, that's clear. And, you know, but, but I think again, you know, another theme 
of the Trump administration is that he is rarely on the same page with his advisors um, and and is very likely to change directions, whether in terms of substance or just the sort of pacing and style of what's, you know, that I think he has a certain need for drama. And, and I think he has a nose for sort of the political currents. And when he thinks he's not getting enough positive attention or he's not, you know, whatever, that kind of thing, I think he throws tweets out to stir things up. And I think that's more or less what he did with his tariff threat was it wasn't that he needed the threats to get a deal. He had a deal. Instead, he needed the threats for political, you know, mojo. I need to make it look like I'm a tough guy. I don't feel tough enough right now for whatever reason. So I'm going to do a fake victory by claiming I did this. And, and in fact, he didn't do anything of the sort. Yeah, and what's fascinating about this to me is that when you compare it to the Bush administration, where there was often a kind of a three-line whip applied to make sure that everyone was using the same talking points, you know, Trump says what he says, and then, you know, deputy national security advisor, assistant secretary of state, so-and-so will pretty openly say, uh, no, that's not what's going on. You know, and there's no problem with that because Trump knows that the people he's talking to only care what comes out through the tweets and could care less about what an assistant secretary says. In fact, they would like for us to not have assistant secretaries of states and things like that. I wonder if the follow-on question here really is, is the media and the public getting slightly better at understanding that this is what the president's tactics are? Because it seems like a lot of the confusion that's actually here is not just that officials and the administration are saying different things, it's that the press actually immediately went digging to see, was there already an existing deal? Was this just political of the tweets? Are, are we getting better at judging what Trump's doing? Um, yeah, I guess so, Emma, but I just don't... like. One can say that that's going on, but the question is then what what are the political implications of that, right? Is, does it mean that people know what game is being played here, and so will will you know react a certain way come election time, or they know it's going on, but they don't care, and they'll still support him for the reasons they supported him previously? Yeah, that's my take. I, I think the fact is that everyone knows that Trump is doing something a little bit shifty whenever he talks, but. That's baked into the price at this point. And so it's not news that Trump had a deal, changed the deal, the thing. I mean, nobody cares. And only inside the Beltway do people actually care about, you know, the difference between what Trump says and the assistant secretary bottle washer says. I mean, no one out in the rest of America cares about any of that. Like what's actually happening. That's all they care about. Maybe. <laughs> I ever read a book about the Trump administration. I'm calling it boiling a frog, I think. <laughs> so let's move on to our big topic of the day, because it gets us away from all this sort of rubbish on a daily basis. Um, and I want to talk about the Middle East and the legacies of the Arabs. Something Spring. light and fun. and <laughs> Right. But this is a big, sprawling topic and one that impacts US foreign policy. It impacts the future of the region, impacts global energy security, all of these sort of big topics. And we still, I think, really don't quite understand the legacies of the Arab Spring. Um, so I just want to start by talking about some of these big dynamics. Um, you study religion and politics in particular in the region. So I mm -hmm. thought we could start by talking generally a little about sectarianism in mm -hmm. the region. Is it real? Is it the cause of all these conflicts? Is it ancient hatreds? Or is this something that governments are, are using as a tool? How do we understand sectarianism in this context? So is it real? I mean, yes, yes and no. You know, how's that for a typical academic answer? It, it, it's real in the sense that there are absolutely um, sectarian groups in the Middle East that, that take seriously differences between uh, different uh, religious segments of society. Um, and, you know, those differences serve as a factor and an accelerant in, in conflicts. But, you know, I, when, when I think about sectarianism in the Middle East today, I actually, you know, think that somewhere like Northern Ireland 
is the best reference point for understanding what's going on there. Because, you know, was religion present in that conflict? Absolutely. You know, did Catholicism and Protestantism provide powerful symbols and images to mobilize people? Yes. Were there religious actors involved? Yes. At its root, was that conflict about theological differences between Catholics and Protestants? No, of course not. It was about far more prosaic things like political control and power and economics and who is in charge of whom. Um, likewise, in the Middle East today, in a place like Iraq, um, you know, the, the, un, under Saddam Hussein, Sunnis and Shia in that country lived together peacefully. They intermarried. Um, questions of whether your neighbor belonged to one or another sectarian group was not really part of, you know, everyone's day-to-day -day life. And it's only with the removal of the authoritarian overlay of, you know, Saddam Hussein's regime uh, and political entrepreneurs who found utility in activating and sharpening and playing on those demographic differences that it became activated as a factor, much like the, you know, the, the Yugoslav civil war in the early 1990s. Um, so, yes, it's it's there. It's it's an available resource for certain groups that that need to f form sort of form for sharp images of friend and enemy. But at root, most of the issues that are being debated and 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 fought over um, are not about things like ancient hatreds. They're they're about the stuff of politics, you know, money and power. Yeah, and and actually, you know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, particularly if we're going to talk about Syria, because a lot of people have have said, how did a country like Syria that was actually known for being very diverse, very tolerant of religious minorities prior to the war, and then suddenly all of that was just shoved aside and sectarianism really became a big factor during the war. How did that even happen? Yeah. So I think in order to understand sectarianism in the Middle East today, you have to think of it in terms of three different layers. Okay. So there's the, the kind of core of it are, you know, the basic reality of the fact that in a country like um, Iraq, you had for several hundred years a religious minority, Sunnis, ruling over the country's religious majority, Shia. Uh, in the case of Syria, you have a minority Shia-linked group, the, the Alevis, uh, ruling over a Sunni majority. Um, and so, you know, you have those basic demographic differences, which provide the raw resources of potential social conflict. Then you have a kind of layer above that, that, that my, my good friend Kamran Bokhari, very astute analyst of, of Middle East politics, calls geosectarianism. And, right? and this is where um, questions of sectarianism uh, become the basis of international relations-related um, conflicts. So where you know, Sunni and Shia becomes a proxy space for the decades-long rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, with each of those countries uh, accessing, mobilizing their particular sectarian group in order to achieve their goals in a particular country. Then all of this you know, is then accelerated by a group like ISIS when it appears in 2014, um, you know, that that does actually adhere to a theological position that views Shia Muslims as apostates and people against whom it's permissible to commit violence. Um, and so you sort of, um, you know, mix all of those layers together and get them interacting and intersecting with, with each other, and you have this god-awful mess.
the next time I have to talk to our interns about conflict in the Middle East, can you please come and give that answer? Because that was, I think, a lot clearer than what I usually say. Um, but it's it's such an interesting question. Um, and one of the others that I think debates in Washington here often highlight is we have this real tendency to conflate that sectarianism debate, I think, with debates over political Islam and democratization. And we just sort of view that as all part of the same whole, but I'm not really sure it is part of the same whole. Um, I'm not sure what you think. No, no. And the, the kind of rules of sectarianism don't even hold here. So, you know, if you think of, for example, you know, the if, if, if you think of Iran's Islamic revolution in 1979, right? So th this is this is an event often associated with the kind of beginning of a very aggressive form of modern Shiite political Islam. Uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, in Egypt, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is a, is a Sunni group. The, the Muslim Brotherhood in the early 80s kind of welcomed Iran's Islamic revolution, even though it was a Shi'i revolution, just because they saw in it a sort of a living, breathing example of political Islam, an effort to establish an Islamic state, which had long been their goal. So they welcomed it. So, so they, they had no problem looking past that sectarian divide because of a sort of shared, broader um, political goal or, or ideological overlap point. There's a lot of a lot of hostility too. I think um, partly because I focus on Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of hostility between some of the, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood groups and some of the countries like Saudi Arabia that have actually been quite assertive in pushing a, a sectarian, a form of sectarianism in the region. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's funny for for you know people, m Middle East watchers of of my tribe, because you know you rewind 20, 30 years. And you actually find Saudi Arabia very supportive of Muslim Brotherhood type groups, right? So back when Saudi Arabia's main geopolitical rival in the region was Egypt rather than Iran, and and um, you know Nasser's um, pan Arabism, um, you know which involved the Egyptian government in the 1960s cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood very heavily. Um, people, you know, leaders from the Brotherhood left Egypt seeking sanctuary elsewhere in the region and Saudi Arabia was happy to welcome them with open arms and give them jobs in Saudi universities. Um, and, and, and so th th there was a period of time when the Muslim Brotherhood and the Saudi government worked together very profitably. Um, and it's only in more recent years, in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings more specifically, when the Saudis and the em Emiratis, I think even more so, perceived how much of a potential existential threat to their own regimes the Muslim Brotherhood posed that they felt the need to take this very draconian stance against the movement. So it, it, that, that, that's a good sort of segue for me because I, when, when I think back to my earliest sort of say college, and we're talking about the 1980s here, um, thoughts about like what's going on in the Middle East, there was still very much this notion that, you know, pan-Arab movement, and it was mostly, it seemed like us against Israel, well, and and maybe against the United States sometimes too, was kind of the main kind of geopolitical force helping organize some of those Arab politics at the time. What changed over some period of time to go from that to where you get to the Arab Spring and then today? I mean, what is it? Is it how the United States was acting? Was, was it the, the Gulf War and sort of the aftermath? I mean, how much, you know, what? what, what? 
No, I mean, we, we, we have this very odd equation now where you seem to have Saudi Arabia and Israel kind of on the same side in many regards. It's freaking right? me which, out. Which, again, yeah. to someone who's been a long-term observer of the region, you know, it's like black is white. How is this happening? And I, again, I think the explanation goes back to the Arab uprisings because as much as, um, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia were a geo-regional, you know, regional political opponents in some sense, there is also another sense in which there was a clear overlay in terms of the security structure of the Middle East built by and enforced by the United States. And both Israel and Saudi Arabia, as much as they disagreed with each other on certain issues, did have a point of of a point in common in terms of their very close relationship with the United States. What I think spooked the hell out of both of those countries was the Arab Spring and the way that it seemed to reconfigure the structure and rules of the region. That's not surprising because the basic equation that defined U.S. interests in the Middle East had been basically disintegrating over the course of the 1990s and 2000s, and and so. You know, suddenly in 2011, Riyadh and Tel Aviv both wake up and and find themselves in a region whose rules are being rewritten, and they turn to Washington looking for reassurance, and they find an administration that suddenly seems to be talking about you know taking democracy seriously, and they're like, well, you know, for the Saudis, you know, Washington's not supposed to do that. You know, in the from the point of view of Riyadh, we know the deal, right? You know, you you pay lip service to it, but at the end of the day, security is supposed to be paramount. They saw. Uh, you know, and this is really what 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 I think allowed uh, Riyadh and and Israel and the Emiratis to kind of jump in bed together is they saw an Obama administration that seemed to be normalizing its relations with Iran from their their point of view. I mean, I remember when I was working at the State Department at the time. You know, at the time that the Iran nuclear deal was being negotiated at a conference where there were, you know, Saudi diplomats present and, you know, one of them pulled me aside and you know, wanted to know why has Washington chosen Iran as its new strategic partner? And my, my head just about spun around because yes, the U.S. was trying to negotiate a very specific technical deal with Tehran about nuclear policy, but this was being perceived or being talked about as a wholesale shift in Washington's orientation strategically within the region. Um, and so when you understand the perspective on it from a Riyadh, um, th then we get a sense of how disquieting these shifts have been to some of these governments. You know, I, I think there are just so many tensions in our, our focus on the Middle East right now. And I think there's a real tendency to interpret it as the Trump administration, as a backlash to the Obama administration. But actually, the, the underlying issues are much more problematic. And so the one that you highlight there is that the sort of traditional security partnerships we had with the Saudis and the Israelis have been changing in recent years. Um, but another one, I think, comes back to this question of political Islam, because in the Obama administration during the Arab uprisings, what we see is an administration that wasn't particularly happy about some of these um, political Islam parties, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood, but also realized at some level that if you have democracy in some of these countries, that's what you're going to get. And so I thought perhaps we could talk a little about just Washington's relationship to political Islam movements within the Middle East. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even before the Arab uprisings happened, 
Um, I think there there was a realization in the Obama administration that U.S. policy towards a group like the Muslim Brotherhood was going to have to change because it had last been kind of looked at in detail in the early 1990s, around the time of you know you'll remember the Algerian election where that country's um, Muslim Brotherhood party, the Front Islamique du Salut almost won a landslide election, military stepped in, annulled those elections, and the U.S. government basically said, you know what, that was probably a good thing because we don't trust those guys and we suspect that they would just use democracy. They'd use the ballot box to get to power and then they dismantled democracy to make sure they could never be elected. The, the so-called, as former Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, um, uh, Jirigian called it, one man, one vote, one time. And so that kind of mantra had guided U.S. policy towards the Brotherhood since that point. But what had happened on the ground in many countries in the region is that Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim Brotherhood affiliated, linked, and we can get into this nebulousness of what Muslim Brotherhood means precisely. A lot of those parties had decided to make their play primarily in the realm of formal politics and participate in elections. And some of them had done quite well and been elected into parliaments and started doing things like working with other political parties and kind of behaving like mainstream political parties do. And so I think there was a realization in Washington early in the Obama administration that, okay, we're going to have to take a look at this policy. Because as you said, Emma, if we are serious about respecting democratic outcomes in the region, then that's going to mean that 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 people from these parties are going to be elected and we will need to figure out how to do business with them. Yeah, I mean, so perhaps we actually should talk about this because the, the Muslim Brotherhood, for all that it's portrayed as a monolithic group, yeah. it's really not. There no. are so many different branches and affiliated groups. And, you know, if you just look at the Arab uprisings, we have examples where, um, you know, it was successful in some places in Egypt. Then there was another military coup. Um, if you look at Enahada in Tunisia, they actually have done somewhat of a semi-democratic transition. It's been relatively successful. So so this is not one movement in every country across the Middle East. No, I mean, so so there's the Muslim Brotherhood, the, you know, the, the Egyptian social and political movement founded in 1928, that's sort of the, the, the mothership, if you will, um, which within a few decades of its founding had supported the establishment of similar movements and parties and groups in almost every other country around the region, but there wasn't this sort of clear command and control structure where the guys in Cairo gave orders to the leaders of those other groups. Those branches of the Brotherhood that appeared in other countries very quickly started to operate according to their own logic and according to the needs and interests that they perceive for themselves in the specific environments and contexts of those um, uh, countries. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, there's the Muslim Brotherhood, the Egyptian group, but then there's something more broad that that we have to understand that's something like sort of Muslim Brotherhoodism or Ikhwanism, as I like to call it, which is sort of a broad ideological orientation that one can link to a great many groups, dozens of groups, not just in the Middle East, but around the world more broadly. So, I mean, in just talking for a second, even more specifically about the, the question of whether to designate MB as a terrorism, you know, terrorist group. I mean, that... Uh, I can't remember whether they were talking about just the Egyptian version. I don't think so, right? I mean, this was the, a broader designation. And so that seems like a crazy idea, right? I mean, it's sort of like saying we're going to fight terrorism in general, which is sort of a stupid idea, but this seems like 
Not very smart. Now, so this idea of designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, which is, you know, cropped up repeatedly in this administration. They they took an initial run at it soon after um, Trump came to power in, in 2017, and it's come back again, you know, in recent weeks and 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 months. And there's there's a variety of problems with it. One one is just sort of a policy legal problem, which is that the foreign terrorist organization designation process you know which is the main way that 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 the us government identifies uh, particular groups as terrorist organizations has very specific criteria um and and you know first and foremost is that the thing you designate needs to be clearly identifiable the administration has talked about something called the Muslim Brotherhood, and sometimes they seem to talk in terms of the global Muslim Brotherhood, but there is no thing out there that can be designated that has an address or a phone number called the global Muslim Brotherhood. There's the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, which is the entity most clearly identifiable with the term Muslim Brotherhood, but but there is no evidence that it as an organization has engaged in violence since the leadership of that movement renounced violence in the 1970s. So sort of no basis for a designation there. And what happens is that, you know, if if you then look at other groups that are connected to, you know, what I've called Ikhwanism, this broad thing, you start to bump into groups like Emma, you mentioned Nahda in Tunisia. This is a party that has, you know, that oversaw Tunisia's transition to democracy, played a key role in successfully generating a new constitution that seems to have broad support. It didn't win the country's last election, but it respected the results and joined the coalition to support Tunisia's current government. Not exactly terrorist behavior, right? And and so it becomes very difficult to sustain um, uh, you know, a process to designate something called the Muslim Brotherhood without making it very difficult for American diplomats to do business with a lot of groups that are important for, um, you know, our day-to-day routine diplomatic business. Perhaps just another indication that we do need a rethink of our Middle East policy more broadly, not just on the security side of things. Yeah, yeah indeed. So let's let's move on to something a little simpler. Let's move to actual terrorist groups and their ties to sectarianism. Um, so ISIS uh, is defeated, or so the president tells me. Um, they are they are out of territory. Um, there is still a group, or there are still people that are affiliated with ISIS, um, and the forces that created ISIS are, are definitely still present in the region. So what do you think is going to come after ISIS? What is the future of that kind of violent sectarian radicalism in the region. Well, I, I mean, I think you put your finger on it there, Emma, when you kind of said that the precipitating factors that allowed the group that we know as ISIS to appear, or technically reappear in 2014, are still very much present. Um, and I think that until we address the kind of fundamental social, political and security contradictions um, that are at the root of, yes, the ability of a group like ISIS to um, energize and mobilize, but frankly are also at the root of events like the original Arab Spring in 2011, as well as the more recent upheavals that we've seen in Algeria and Sudan. 
Until we address those issues, uh, there are certain countries where the ingredients will remain present for ISIS or ISIS-like groups. You know, the brand name, the 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 name under which they're doing business, so to speak, may change. Um, but that basic modality of global Salafi jihadi militancy. Um, you know, remains very much part of the r- r- repertoire and will continue to have appeal um, in the kind of environments that we find today in places like Syria, um, in parts of Iraq, in Yemen. I worry about Libya as as well, and one worries about other countries that aren't experiencing it potentially kind of falling into that same kind of quagmire. So you can say they're defeated. As you know, in terms of being dislodged from territory that they controlled, um, but but the 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 environment that produced them has not really been appreciably changed. So, just to follow up on that, I I feel like it seems pretty clear that that situations of anarchy are bad. Uh, Libya, much of Syria, uh, lots of the Middle East at various points since nine eleven, especially I guess you might say. Um, that's that's one thing. Um, but it, it seems to me that um, there's not much the United States can do. So when you say when until we change the conditions, I'm not sure that that we have done much to uh, improve those conditions. Actually, I think probably the opposite. Number one and number two, I think one of the other big conditions that drives these things is the crappy governments in the Middle East that we actually more or less have supported over decades and decades. Um, what, what's the play for the U.S. government here? I mean, are we going to do better to continue to try to find ways to help or are we better off sort of saying, you know, we can't pick governments for other countries very well. It's probably not our job. Maybe we'll watch this time. Yeah, no, I I, I don't actually think that this is a, a situation where the U.S. government has the deciding hand. I, I think what we do you know have the capacity to do is to inflect some of the decisions that close security partners nearer to the action uh countries like saudi arabia and the emirates and the choices that they make because i think it's been you know around dynamics of sectarianism sectarian conflict for example it it has been things that the saudis and the emiratis have been doing in places like yemen certainly uh syria to some extent libya now and as we see those countries exerting themselves in in places like sudan right where where we did have this you know fairly decisive voice coming from the streets you know you know reminiscent of of the the sort of drama and the hope frankly of 2011 we now see a a a riyadh and in abu dhabi the saudis and the emiratis um working very closely with the military in sudan to try to make sure that 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 they maintain the upper hand for fear of creating a sort of another contagion effect of popular revolution and so i think there are are certain countries where the conflict element is strong um where we can make a case to the Saudis and the Emiratis that it's in their own national security interest to hold back uh, on the temptation to play a sectarian card to support their groups because of the potential backlash effects on on them. Um, And so I think that if we can get some of those current conflict zones stabilized, 
um, then I think that there is a a political process that you know we will not be decisive in, um, but that we can help to kind of nudge incrementally in the right direction in places like Iraq, for example. We know more or less what it would take, what kind of reforms would be needed in Iraq to minimize the risk of sort of ISIS resurgence. Like that 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 equation is there. Um, and so the question then is how do we incrementally and gradually nudge the key political actors in Iraq itself and those who have influence on them from around the region in in the right direction over time? You know, I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up Sudan because a lot of what we're talking about here is very much in the rearview mirror, right? This is decisions that were made five, six, seven years ago that we're now dealing with the consequences of or trying to figure out how to deal with the fallout of. Sudan is is kind of a different kettle of fish. Sudan is ongoing protests similar to the ones that we saw in the early stages of the Arab uprisings, a military crackdown similar to ones that we saw later in those uprisings. But th- what seems to be the difference to me is that everybody has learned something from what happened seven or eight years ago. So the protesters in the streets are a little more wise. The military government's wise. Regional actors are intervening earlier than they did in previous situations. 2011 was improvised, right? Everyone was making it up, figuring it out as they went along because it was so unexpected, so unprecedented. Um, uh, and, And I think that's a good part of the explanation as to why there was early success because once it was clear that the the regimes in question were not going to literally kill the protesters, there was only one direction that things were going to go. But as you said, there's been a lot of learned behavior now. We're seeing the learned behavior not just on the side of the protesters, right? Who, you know, it, it may well be that had this happened in 2011, they would have been satisfied with just the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir, get rid of the Bashir government, and we'll trust these military guys to for a while. As long as we've got rid of the nasty guy, trust the military to kind of keep things stable and do some sort of transition. But having watched what happened in places like Egypt and Libya, I don't think the protesters are satisfied with handing control over to a military that has its own distinct set of interests politically and economically, and they do not coincide with those of the protesters. Likewise, we see a couple of very powerful governments in the region, I've already mentioned them numerous times today, the Saudis and the Emiratis, who have kind of appointed themselves the guardians of the status quo, of the old order that are willing to expend a lot of political and financial capital um, in order to, to shore up um, that, that regional order that they would like to see. And so I worry that even though the contradictions, the structural issues that produced the first Arab Spring that 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 generated popular protests more recently in Algeria and Sudan are still very much with us. Um, ha- having a relatively easy and and soft landing, as we seem to at first in 2011, the likelihood of that has been reduced considerably. So I worry that even as we you know there's the likelihood of these sorts of dynamic continue to play out, the stakes are much higher, and the risk of them turning into violence and violence on a large scale, I think, continues to be very high, unfortunately. 
Well, uh, we, we are running out of time here, but I guess I just want to build on that with one final big question, um, you know, which is we have been through almost a decade of, of, of uprisings at this point and their aftermath. Um, and I, th- I think the question is, like in a lot of previous historical cases where we see pro-democracy or pro-liberalism uprisings and then there's a backlash, the question is, is democracy dead in the Middle East for a generation or is this something that we could see change sooner? Are, are we talking about something that has effectively been beaten back by the forces of the status quo? Or are we talking about something where there's still potential for change? I think there's potential for change, but I don't think that the drivers and guarantors of that change are the cast of characters that we're used to in terms of shaping outcomes in the Middle East. Um, so I don't think that any of the United States, Europe, and key regional powers like Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Turkey, have the wherewithal, and in many cases, the interest or the will to make um, something like political pluralism, reform, I hesitate to use the word democracy just because it's such a loaded term. Um, somewhat better, somewhat nonviolent, better politics happen anytime soon. But and so, and here's the wild card I'll throw, I'll throw in there. Maybe the answer is China, right? So if we take Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030 idea, right, which is really about Saudi Arabia getting itself off oil and reaching eastward towards emerging markets in Asia, and you have China's Belt and Road Initiative, right, which is about China reaching westward, you know, to drive economic growth in its western provinces and to open up new markets for itself in Central Asia, certainly. But as we know, Belt and Road is very ambitious. It touches South Asia. It reaches into the Middle East. At some point, these two ambitious geoeconomic visions cross each other and will have to become interoperable in order to deliver on their economic promise. And so when you think of the things that drove reform in f- the former Soviet Union after the Cold War, in a lot of countries in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, the magnet was the idea of being able to be part of the European Union or NATO. And, and that magnet was strong enough to get them to do what needed to be done to maintain the right stability, make the right reforms to be able to participate in those large-scale um, security and economic structures that had, had the potential to pay enormous dividends. So for me, the question is, what could be the structural equivalent, the, the, the sort of m- the force of magnetism to incentivize that kind of stability and reform in the Middle East. And I think it is something like the fact that Iran desperately wants to be part of Belt and Road. Um, and and in order for Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030 to, to pay out what it needs to pay out, it's going to have to be able to accommodate the integration of a country like Iran in it, which means there will have to be some measure of detente between those two countries in order for them to pursue their, their economic interests. And so I'm seeing, you know, I'm hoping, let me put it that way, I'm postulating that one potential large-scale source of stability in time um, is what happens, you know, is what what occurs when emerging markets 
in Asia meet enormous, you know, visionary aspiration coming out of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And of course, what's interesting, what's interesting to that is that the United States just isn't really in that story, or at most is a peripheral player. Fascinating. Well, I think that's a really interesting place to, to leave that discussion for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, and thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks also to our producer, Cecil Sherman. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. <laughs>